The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Hey, chapel family, if you're new, welcome. My name is Ryan, and I'm your pastor. And we are in Corinthians season two, which is working through topics of sexuality, sex, God, and marriage. And today we bring ourselves to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. So if you want to start flipping there, scrolling there, I'm going to let you know from the outset this chapter for me is uh, difficult, but also was a chapter that carried me through a season of life that we'll talk about here in a minute. And this morning, this morning, it, uh, it's, it's just a different, different kind of message. This is the kind of message that I never want to preach twice. It's the type of message that makes me think, man, we should just do one service at the chapel so I don't have to do these things twice in a row. But I'm grateful for God who carries me and who carried, carries you. And I'm grateful for God who redeems broken things. So hopefully by now you flip there to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into this morning's message. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the way that you've carried me along. Lord, before I even walked with you, you knew my steps. And I'm, I'm grateful for the way that you have always guided my life. I'm grateful for the ways that you've picked me up when I have fallen down. I'm grateful for the ways where you have chosen to adopt me, love me, embrace me, despite me and my own shortcomings and stupidity. Lord, I pray for this morning that people who, whose lives mirror this passage, that they would find hope, like I found hope. I pray this morning for people who, who may be in a good place in life, and, and specifically in their marriages and relationships, Lord, that they would, I pray for all the marriages here, that you would light faithfulness and passion and love and unity and intimacy into the marriages at the chapel. And I pray that you would come alongside those who are single, Lord, whether it's ne never married or divorced or widowed, that you would Give them today, Lord, a sense of hope and purpose and joy and peace in knowing and being known by you. And now, Lord, for the, the passage at hand, with the pain that comes with this topic this morning, I pray that you would be present. Be our dad. Be our comforter. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen. I'm going to read it, and then we will talk about it. To the married, I give this charge. This is Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 7.10. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman who has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy. Holy means set apart. Holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy, set apart, because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy, set apart. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? May God bless his word this morning. 
This is why this passage is, is a difficult one for me. And I'm praying that it connects to you. I've been praying all week for marriages. I've been praying all week for the pain of divorce. But almost 20 years ago, something happened to me that made me swim and live in this passage. My wife came to me four months after we were married and said, I no longer want to follow Jesus. I don't want to do this church thing. I didn't know what to do. I was a young youth pastor, and I went to my mentor. I said, what do I do? Do I quit? Because I've read things in the Bible. I don't know what's going on. And he said, you should pray and fast. And being a Bible guy, literally, I didn't, like, ask him, like, how do I fast? I just went to the Bible and read passages about fasting. This is back when you had to use a concordance, which is something you don't need anymore because we have Google. But I went and looked up fasting, and I said, okay, my pastor said I needed to fast. And the first passage I flipped to is Jesus fasting for 40 days in the desert. I was like, bet, seems doable. Let's do it. So when I was 21 years old, four years into marriage, or four months into marriage, wife said, no longer, going to follow. I said, Lord, I'm just going to fast. I have no idea what to do. So I'm just going to stop eating and pray. The Lord didn't give me any spectacular wisdom other than to stay. I just, I read this. I said, Lord, you said stay. Because there's a, a chance that in me staying and me trying to press in, that, that there'll be a turnaround. So I stayed. And life was going on, and the spiritual chasm continued to grow over two years. And life from every other metric was going well. I bought my first condo in Southern California. It was great. I worked two jobs. I made pretty good money. I was working as a Bible teacher, and I was an associate pastor at a church, a brand-new church plant. And I came home two weeks after buying my condo, and I found my now ex there with suitcases packed and our dog. And she said, you're never going to change, and I'm never going to want to come back to the church, so I'm just going to leave. And that day began a day that has shaped me and marked me in extremely painful ways because I went to my boss's house, who was the pastor at the church where, that we had just planted, and he didn't console me with his first words. His first words were, you need to step down so that you're Divorce doesn't affect the church plant, to which I gave him unchristian words and responses. And I, uh, I walked promptly away, and I told God, I don't even know who I am anymore. Things unraveled that summer, and, uh, and I, I didn't want to, to go on. I'd, I lost my identity as a pastor I lost, I finished my bachelor's degree, so I, I went to school to be a pastor, and now I'm like, I'm never going to want to be a pastor again. I don't even know what type of church I would even want to go to. I got to the end of my rope, and everyone that I thought would be there for me was not there. And everyone that I didn't expect showed up. It was shortly after everything had unraveled that I, um, I grew up with asthma my whole life, very bad asthma. I've been in the hospital several times for it. And I got to such a point of hopelessness where I thought, Lord, I'm not, I would never just take my life. It's not my disposition. But you know what I'll do, Lord? I will run down an isolated road, down this empty trail, until asthma takes me. And I'm just going to roll over into a bush and be gone with it. And you guys, that day, in Southern California, I ran. And I ran. And I ran. 
And I, it's like God said, today your asthma's done. And I don't know how far I ran, but I got so frustrated that I was breathing clearly for the first time in my life that I literally fell to my knees and was screaming at the heavens, God, why can't you let me have an asthma attack? Why? I just want to go. The people that God brought were some of my former students. None of my pastor friends came. Later they told me, we didn't know what to say. Because the title of today's message is The Scarlet D, and now I had it written on me. None of my pastor friends came. You know who came to my house, my condo, when I was all by myself? Students. A handful of teenagers, 15 and 16-year-olds, at no request of their parents. They went to Trader Joe's. They bought what they knew to be my favorite foods from sermons. And they came in, and they cleaned my house. And they made me pod thai. And they stocked my refrigerator with their own babysitting money. I had one friend that came to my house, of all of my friends at the time. He was in law school, and he said he was driving home from classes one night. And this is not the type of friend that is, uh, at the time, maybe thinking that the Spirit would just speak to him. But he said, as crystal clear as he's heard anything, the Spirit of God said, drive to Ryan's house. Go past your house. Keep going 30 minutes past your house and go to Ryan's house where he found me. And I had fallen into a place where I had turned to alcohol to try to numb pain. And he found me. My head was bleeding because I was hitting it on a wall. And he picked me up and he threw me in the shower and he stayed with me all night. A family who I didn't know very well, who I worked with at the school, uh, said, you need to be with people. So you're coming to my house. And I said, no. And she said, fine, I'm going to send my son to come pick you up. 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back. And she sent her son to pick me up, to bring me to their house for dinner, night after night after night after night. So God did send some graces. But as life began to unravel for me, because I no longer was employed by this church, I no longer wanted to talk to that pastor, nor the worship leader, who is ironically a very famous, very, very famous worship leader, and has written amazing songs about God's grace. And I found out later that it was his idea, because he had gone through a divorce earlier in his life that, that wrecked a church. So he told my best friend and boss to, to let me go. I said, way to write songs about grace, jerk. And I didn't want anything to do with it. And I got to the point where I couldn't sustain living here. And during this time, this transitionary period where my ex had left, she said, I don't want to miss out on my 20s. I'm not going to go to the church anymore, and you're not going to walk away from it. So in the midst of that and my brokenness and all the, the pain that comes with divorce, because div marriage is a mingling of souls. It's like taking Gorilla Glue and putting two pieces of paper together and then trying to tear them apart. It doesn't work. And that's what happens. That's why divorce is painful. In the midst of that, this family that keeps taking me in like a wounded puppy, um, her daughter was friends with someone that I met named Amy Ivins. Amy Ivins is a Baptist pastor's daughter. I was a mid-twenties divorced man. Can you imagine being a divorced man in his 20s in love with a late teenage, 19-year-old Baptist preacher's daughter. And she was chasing me. I wasn't chasing her. Nobody believes me. And I get it, you guys. I get it. 
I say this, and everyone's like, <laughs> have you seen yourself and her next to each other? Yes, my personality shines like gold, you know. Um, she did, and I told her. I, I've told her hundreds of, t- hundreds of times in the beginning, I have nothing to give you, nothing. I can't make this mortgage payment anymore. I, I have no heart. I literally have a heart that got shattered. I have no purpose. I have no career anymore. I don't even know what I'm going to do with my life now. I have got nothing. And she said, I'll wait. She kept waiting. And um, eventually got to the point, my my family lived in Hawaii at the time, and my mom said, just come and heal. Just come and heal. So I literally, mid-20s, took pictures of everything in my condo, put it up on the market for sale, and I said, come take anything from my house. I need to get rid of stuff. I need a one-way ticket. Any donation that you can give me will be helpful. So in my mid-20s, after I had just had my dream jobs, I just had a condo, I had all the things that I wanted. Now I'm reduced down to books and one duffel bag of clothing, and that is all that I owned. And I got a one-way ticket to an island in the middle of nowhere. Now granted, there is great coffee there (laughs) and beaches, but that's not what God was doing. God brought me there. My mom said, where do you want to go? She picked me up from the Kona airport. She was late. I'll never forgive her. Anyways, she got there. I said, where do you want to go? I said, Mom, just take me to a beach. We went to Old A's Beach. It's an old airport in Kona. And, um, and she could tell, like, uh, there's three of us brothers. I'm by far a wide margin the most sensitive one. And she could tell, like, okay, he's doing that brooding thing. And I sat down on the beach. She just stayed back. And, um, and I prayed. I said, God, you've been my king. You've been my God. You've been my Lord, my Savior. You've been my boss. I don't need any of that right now, Lord. I just need you to be my dad because I have no idea what I'm doing. I've got nothing left. Nothing. Like literally, in Hawaii, I left all my books in in California in my grandparents' garage. I had a Bible and an army surplus duffel bag, like not even a zipper bag. Like that's how low I felt. Like I remember unpacking it and thinking, my all my possessions are in this bag that's held together by a flap and rope. And I got nothing. And God said, perfect. It's right where I needed you. And time went on, and Amy continued to pursue me like a rabid dog. She would not relent. And we knew that it was moving in a very serious direction. So I moved back to California at the end of that year. And I had to sit down with a Baptist preacher to say, I would like to marry your daughter. And if you don't think that I was in this passage up to my eyes, you're out of your mind. Because the Bible says a lot of things about marriage and divorce. We know if you've gone to any church, like divorce is not good. It's not optimal. God does not like divorce. In, in some translations, there's very explicit, God hates divorce. And it's not that he says, divorce, and I just hate it. God hates a lot of things that we don't talk about in the church. God hates gluttony. We don't talk about that. But the scarlet D was one where I thought, I will never work in a church again, nor did I want to. When I went to Hawaii, when I was there, I was like, I'm going to go to a church. I'm not going to tell anybody that I know anything about any Jesus stuff. I'm going to go to a church that I just want to learn about God and stack chairs and clean a toilet and take out the trash. That's all I want. And I would sit in Bible studies and people would say dumb stuff. And I'm just like, bite your lip. You don't say anything. 
be. And God brought me through this process and brought me to the place where I, I had to r- wrestle with what sins did I do? Or maybe you're asking yourself, maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you're thinking about divorcing. Maybe you've wondered. What we often forget in the church is that we are all massively more broken than we think we are. I talked to one person in between services who was in the first service. And I said, how did it feel? And they said, I stink. But God lifts me up. I said, yeah, you do. But God lifting you up. I am broken, and I thought I will never go back again. The church turned its back on me, and I'm just going to go be a servant of God. I just want to love him, worship, sing, make a disciple here at some coffee shop, and that's it. When I moved back to California, I got a job because a friend was a district manager for Hollister. It's part of Abercrombie and Fitch, and because I'm professionally this good looking, they hired me instantly. And um, I became a store manager. I thought, this is kind of cool, just bossing around teenagers. It's basically being a youth pastor, but in a pagan place. I like it. And, um, and then friends were like, come speak at my camp. Come do this lesson at my church. I was like, okay, because I like you, not because I like church people. And then the pastor got my resume and said, we want to you come interview for this job. We have this youth pastor job. And I said, no. And we sat down at Starbucks, and I said, here's the deal. I listened to these sermons of yours. I read through your whole website. Here's where we differ, and here's why I am a bad fit for this church. Here's where I differ from you biblically, theologically, operating philosophy of ministry-wise. And he said, this all sounds great. I I laid out all my pain, being abandoned by the church, my ex leaving me. Come meet the elders. Same thing. I met the elders. I laid it out. You guys, I'm divorced. I don't like church people. I want nothing to do with this. I don't, I don't know. I just have been doing these favors for friends. And they said, that sounds great. Come teach the youth, and we'll try you out. And I got back into ministry. I just feel so tricked by God sometimes. Because I read the Bible, and I'd read the Bible, and because for me, my identity as a pastor how well I could pastor people, how well I could preach or teach. It gave me a sense of worth and value and contribution. It was like saying, like, internally, God, I'm here for you, bud. I'm such a good instrument in your hands. (coughs) And God had to say, you are a bag of dirt who is living only because of my breath in you. Bring nothing to me and let me do through you what I will. And I thought a church... There's no way a church would ever hire me again, and that church did. And then another church hired me in Los Angeles, California. And I thought, how are these people not seeing this? Because my philosophy in interviews is this. Lay out all of my darkest parts so that if they hire me, they know, here's all the sins he's confessed to. Here's all the areas where he stinks. Like when people ask you, what, do, what are your weaknesses? And you do those weird, well, my weaknesses that I'm always way on time. Like you flip it. No, I just go straight up. Like here's where I stink. I'm bad at this, 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 and that. Here are the sins that have in, are in my past. Here are the sins in my present. That way if they hire me, I could be like, you knew what you got. I'm a Christmas box that's been kicked down the road a few times. And here... In this passage, it's where I sat with my father and I said, he said, why should you marry my daughter? You're divorced. I said, this is my life. 
is what happened. She didn't believe. She walked away. Got to the point where I wasn't even able to pray in my own house. She asked me to leave my house to pray and read the Bible because she didn't want to see me do it. So I would wake up, I'd go outside, I'd read and pray, I'd come back in, get ready, and go to work. I said, I don't know. Like, there were things that I did wrong, for sure. Initially, as with all divorces, vitriol rises, and you want to point and blame. And I did that, and then eventually I realized, I can't change anything about another person, but I can, I can bring my junk before God. So I did. My pride, the fact that I saw so much worth in my identity as a pastor and had to confess to God, Lord, I was more brought into pain, not because the marriage just destroyed, but also because I lost my identity as a pastor. It was about me. It wasn't about you. And if we've learned anything from this series, it's that marriage is about God, a man and a woman being joined together to reflect God's intimacy and love and unity. The husband laying down his life for his wife like Jesus did for the church. And the wife honoring, respecting, and, and submitting to her husband as the church does to Christ. And both out of mutual respect and submission to one another because Christ dies for all of us. And it's a level playing field. And I had forgotten all of that. And for me, it was just managing appearances. And it wasn't until I said, God, I, I can't even appear good anymore. And it astonishes me the pain that still, like even to this day, like this sermon, I thought, why does this feel weird? And I confessed in the back. I said, God, it feels weird that I feel weird about this because I know who's paid for my sin. Why is this happening? Because somewhere in my heart, there's still an uneasiness that maybe perhaps some of you will look at me with disapproval. And I'll tell you the same thing I told the first service. I don't need your approval. I don't need my wife's approval. I don't need my children's approval because I have the only approval that matters for eternity, Christ's approval. My hope rests on Christ alone. And there are people who might say, well, I, based on your past, I don't you know, want you to be, I'm not, I'm not going to be part of this church. I, I get that. I get it. It's painful. I adjure you to search the scriptures, no matter where you are, to not just listen to one person's voice, but to search the scriptures and say, what does God tell me to do to live faithfully for him? Because at the end of the day, there are three kingdoms that, that are influencing all of us. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of man, that's the cultural kingdoms of this world, and the kingdom of Satan. And all three kingdoms will seek to speak into your life as a follower of Jesus. The kingdom of God we learn about in his word. We learn how God has hardwired the universe to live a certain way so that you can have joy even when your life falls out from underneath you. You can have peace even when there is no hope in sight because we can trust God's word and has certain moral values that God doesn't create just out of thin air. Morality exists because it's the way he created human beings to flourish. The kingdom of man are the rules that we set. And divorce is very common in churches and outside of churches. Yeah, you can divorce if you just don't like them. You just cite irreconcilable differences. And that's okay. It still pains God's heart. And the thing with the kingdom of Satan is the kingdom of Satan wants to go every in every way against the kingdom of God. Whatever the kingdom of God is for, Satan is trying to twist it and warp it and get you to walk away from it. Just one or two steps so that your life can begin to erode at the foundations. And I had done that. I was walking firmly in the kingdom of man, not realizing it, thinking that I was a being a faithful Christian, but putting all of my hope in who I was, not in who Jesus was on my behalf. Jesus doesn't need me to preach. Preachers are a dime a dozen. 
Jesus doesn't need us to pray. The beautiful thing is, is that when he saves you by his grace, he invites you into this process with others. He says, now you can, and it doesn't matter if you fail, because your identity is not in how good of an evangelist you are. Your identity is not in how well you can pray, with what eloquent words you can pray. Your identity is in me, because I died for you, and now you can just be free. And if there's anything I want to encourage you towards today, whether you are, are a product of, or have experienced, or lived, or influenced by divorce, you need to know that we are all recipients of God's grace. And that the scarlet D is a very real sin in the church where we've highlighted particular sins high above others. Now, there are worse sins, just so you know. Jesus said to one group, a group of religious people, I tell you, it will be more bearable on Judgment Day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. That's scary to think about. More bearable. Like there's gradations of judgment for, for evil and sin and brokenness. And he was telling that to religious people who are being hyper-religious. There's a way, though, to walk in the kingdom of God. What is it to do the works of God, Jesus was once asked? To believe in the one whom he has sent. God's grace in this situation in my life gripped me. To see God's grace in Charlie, to, to, to give me his daughter's hand in marriage, I thought for sure he was going to change his mind along the way. Now I'm quite confident I'm his favorite child. And... um. But it, this was when grace gripped me. This is grace, if you don't know me well. I wrote it on my body. Grace, mercy, it is finished, to telestai. Because I needed reminders. Because I'm prone to say, yes, grace, but, Lord, then I will do this. And I, again and again, if you want to walk in the kingdom of God, it's, Lord, I bring you nothing, and you give me everything. And then you give me the ability to be part of your mission. That's incredible. You give me this gift of marriage? Man, marriage gets hard, though, doesn't it? Because I've been married to Amy now for 12 years. We've got four amazing kids. And I'll tell you what, I think the only reason that I've been able to be a husband the way that I have is not anything to do with me and how much I could learn from the past. It's that I had to learn to die and go down to nothing. So that when the Ephesians 5 says, husbands, lay down your life. I literally, I was at the point where I said, Lord, this is my life. One bag of junk. My life, that's it. I got nothing else. I couldn't pay a bill. I was in debt over my head. I had nothing. And God said, right where I want you. Not just then, but every single day. Some of you ask, why does it always seem like I'm not quite making it? Why does it feel like I'm always having to cry out and reach out for God? Why can't my life just be a little bit more comfortable? I know if you're in that situation, it's hard, but love that situation because those, those who have everything they need, according to the world, they're not crying out for God. Their faith is not growing. And I know because that's been me in seasons, seasons of just ease and then seasons of great turmoil. And it's in the times where I remember and God reminds me, you're a bag of dirt that I breathed into. Bring me nothing, Lord. I don't, need, I don't need the things that you think you bring me. I just want you to come and trust. It's in those moments that I've seen God do incredible things. And that's the same for your marriages. If you're a single person here, you're like, well, this whole sermon doesn't apply to me. Because either maybe, A, you've never been married, B, you were married, you're divorced. There's going to be a lot of questions that I'm not going to answer today. But I want you to go to the Bible to look for them. But there's verses on the back of your bulletin just relating to marriage that I want you to read and think about this week. 
Because it talks about, in the Bible, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And I had to ask myself, am I an adulterer? And then I asked myself more honestly, because that's in Matthew chapter 5. Also in that chapter is Jesus saying, I tell you that any man who has looked at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her in his heart. Do I actually believe those words of Jesus? Because if so, I began adulterizing probably at the age of eight. Up until current, probably. Yeah, that's your pastor. Just the reality. Like, lust is a crazy thing. And does it minimize that divorce is painful and is a different flavor, a different shade? No, it doesn't. I'm just saying that I recognize my need more and more and more. When I go down the rabbit hole of Scripture, I don't see where I can find my worth and how good I can be. The more I learn about the Bible and God and who He is, I see increasingly that I'm far worse than I ever thought or imagined or knew. Because sins now aren't just what other people see. God teaches me that sin began way inside. And I know that marriages can be hard. If you're a single person and you're like, if I just get married, that will solve all my problems. I promise you, this math equation does not work. One sinner plus one sinner does not equal two sin-free people. If you take two people with their own opinions, attitudes, and views, and you combine them legally, socially, intimately, physically, in every way, that is wild. The only people who, I th- you see the single people never married, just longing for marriage. Oh, if I only had because you're not married. Because there are other verses, and I've talked to many married people who read verses like this. In Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, later in this chapter we're in, it says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. I've heard people say, with a wrong kind of twinkle in their eye, so you're telling me that if my spouse dies, I can remarry. And I'm not joking, and I'm sure in the room this size, and especially first service, it's crossed minds, because you live with your spouse, you get married, and it's all great for the first, like, six hours, and then something happens, six months, six, whatever it is, and then you're like, ah, that person's bugging me today, that's where it starts, you point out the things wrong in them, say, "Ah, I wish I could change this about them, guess what, newsflash, you can't. You cannot change. The Spirit of God needs to intervene in marriages. But I've heard people, and I was at a point where I just thought, Miss, it'd be easier. It'd be easier if I just died. It'd be easier if they would just die. It'd be easier if someone just dies. Because then it's just freedom. God called me to a life of peace when my ex left. It doesn't mean that my marriage is all hunky-dory now, although I'm quite... I've been quite pleased thus far. We love each other. And we try to change each other. We try to be each other's Holy Spirit. Uh, You should do this. You shouldn't try to do that. You should try to do this. And then I remember, Ryan, die to yourself. The purpose of marriage in a Christian marriage is for me to so often and so frequently and with such commitment lay down my life for my bride that people look at our marriage and say, that reminds me of Jesus. That reminds me of Jesus. And the purpose for her is to honor, love, and respect me in such a way that they, people look at her and say, that reminds me of the church. That reminds me of just beautiful submission and connection. And it's not that I'm higher than she is. The Right before that whole passage in Ephesians says, out of respect for one another and out of submission to Christ, submit to one another. So as humans, though, it's a living picture. 
And are we being that picture? Because something that scares me, and I think it's straight out of the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of man says, yeah, some of these God rules are old-fashioned. Don't do them. Do what you want. Divorce if you want. Have an affair. Just, you know, do this. Look at that if you want. You can do the second glance if you want. That's okay. That's the kingdom of man. The kingdom of Satan is more subversive. Evil wanting to supplant and twist God's truth. The kingdom of Satan has done something that I, I see, and it's very vile in marriages nowadays in the church. And that is, is that people stay legally married and bound together, but inside, it's a dead grave. The love is gone. There's no respect. There's no love. There's no unity. There's no submission. There's no honor. There's no joy. And people say, well, I'm staying together because it's marriage, and God wants us to stay together. Do you think that that's what God's ideal hope is for your marriages? I hope that you honor a legal bond with hollow, rotting death inside. That's the joy that I want for my children. I don't wish that on my four kids. You know, um, Bella, when you grow up and you're 37 and you finally meet a guy and have your first kiss on your wedding day only, I pray that shortly thereafter, internally, your marriage becomes an empty grave, but externally, you follow all the rules so the people approve of you. Nobody would say that about their daughter or their sons. Why do we think it's okay? And that's the lie that Satan has, has sowed into the church. And I'm not saying this. Don't use this as an excuse. Well, we're dead inside. I might as well just finish off the death of this relationship and get a divorce. I'm saying the very opposite. Go to the resurrecting king and say, Lord Jesus, I hate my spouse. Just say what you're feeling. God already knows. You might as well stop hiding it. I need you to resurrect this. I don't know how to get over these feelings. I'm so bitter. I can't stand them. My wife is this, my wife is that, my husband's this, my husband's that. And there's no longer this picture of how can I love you? How can I die for you? How can I serve you? How can I lay down my life and give you things that point you to Jesus? It's really hard to be in a marital fight when someone just drops to their knees in prayer. I mean, just try it next time. Next time your spouse is just laying into you, if you're the one that gets laid into, just be like, I don't know if this is going to work. Then you can just bow your head and pray. You might get your head chopped off. That's a risk you'll have to take. But just go down and pray. Say, Lord, I, I've blown it. I don't know what's going on. But I know that I'm not dying enough right now. It's amazing that, that the kingdom of Satan has sown these seeds in. If you keep this exterior covenant, then the interior ones don't matter. Do you remember your vows, married people? Remember your vows? You know how many times you've broken your vows? Just today, in the first service, I said something about, you know, it being hard when you get married. And we had a husband clap, the only person that clapped in the whole room, because his wife was the only wife not here with him. Yeah, and I called him out on Facebook, because I want his wife to catch him, Kit. <laughs> catch him. Go, go get him. Because there's just honesty. Like sometimes you look at them and you're like, why, Lord, this one? I've been there. I felt the sting and the pain of that. I felt the separation. Two pieces of paper that were glued together were then shattered apart, and you're never the same. The Bible's very clear about the, the reasons why God created it, and that's why it's such a painful process. You're never the same. People say, it would be easier. You don't know my situation, Pastor. I mean, my marriage is nothing anyway. How could I possibly... I, I promise you, you'll never be the same. If the purpose of your marriage is to die for someone, 
to lay down your life, to be a picture of, of God's love for his people. If that's the purpose of marriage, then praise be to the Lord that God gave you a cantankerous, horrendous spouse. Because you get to do it. And it's easy. I'm married to an incredible woman. She is a 10 out of 10 on every scale that I've ever known. And pastors, we're supposed to say that. It, sometimes, though, it literally is so hard. Like, I'm like, she just does so much. Like, she makes me want to lay down my life for her. Sometimes I just want her to be a little grumpy. So it's a challenge. I don't really. No, I don't. I retract that in Jesus' name. But some of you have taken for granted the gift of faith that God is putting in front of you. It was a gift when I had to get rid of everything in my life, save Christ alone. It was a gift when all I had was a Bible on an island with not enough money to get off of the island. It was a gift when all I had was a part-time job that I could decline by hitting nine on the, the star key in Hawaii. Do you want to substitute teach today? Is the weather good today in Hawaii? Yes, it is. No, I will not teach today. Goodbye. And I would sit there and weep and wail and cry and beg God. And slowly as time went on, as God does with divorce or with death or with any loss, divorce is a type of death. It's a death of a relationship. When you have a death, there's a hole that's left. The hole has to heal with time. And that's called grief is what we call this. And I went through my grieving period there. And I never wanted to be a pastor again. And I went through the scriptures and I told churches, don't, no, no, no. And then finally I relented and said, fine, God, yes, I will. And that brings me all the way to here. I didn't want to share this. I thought, if I share my story on a pulpit Sunday, I don't want people to think about my story and not how the story of God connects to them. The reason I put the passages there is because if you've been through a divorce, if you know someone who's going through a divorce, if you thought, I would really love to divorce, I want you just to read the word. I want you to be a word-driven person, a Bible-driven person, because it's only when we saturate ourselves in the Bible, it's only when we listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us through his word, speaking to us through our, our hearts and minds, that we can walk in the kingdom of God and not be swayed by these changing morals of the kingdom of man and not have the twisting sensation of, of the kingdom of Satan putting darkness into our marriages, saying, this is just okay, that's just okay, it, the second glance is okay. And I'm not saying this is a legalist. I'm not saying, now, if you look at a woman with lust, men, you are a sinner. Guess what? I already know you will and you are. And I already know Jesus never did and never was and never will be. And he took all of our sin upon him for you, knowing your shortcomings and failures, so that you can bring God nothing over and over and over again. And when you get to that place where you can just rest in who God is and what he's done for you, this is the freedom you get. The freedom to live without fear of anyone's approval of you. I was dancing in the lobby in between services, and, and one of the ladies out there said, no, you should not dance. And I said, I do not care. Life is kind of like that. If you're dancing only because you know the dance moves and you, you're concerned what people think, you're never going to be free in your Christian life. You're never going to find the freedom and the hope that the Bible talks about. When the Bible says, Christ died to set you free means he died to set you free from worrying about whether or not God's going to provide. He died to set you free 
from the opinions of other people because of the stupid mistakes you've done and failed in. He, did, he died to set you free from having to obey the kingdom of man and listen to these rules that are forever changing based on one tweet to the next. He died to set you free from the kingdom of Satan that seeks to twist and distort and drive you away from how life is supposed to be and toward how Satan wants you to live in a spiral of destruction that leads towards self-centeredness and hate and greed. That's what he died to set you free from. And it's so refreshing, you guys, because I'm going to go home after this sermon, and I'm free. And I want you to be free, whether you're in a great marriage, a mediocre marriage, a terrible marriage, whether you're single, whether you're widowed, whether you're contemplating some other things. Get into the word, believe what it says, and then be simple and just say, God, I'll obey it. I, you, you freed me. I don't, even ha- I don't have to do anything. I'm free to blow it all day every day, but you freed me, and I'm really grateful for that. I'm just going to obey because I think that you're pretty smart. See, I didn't have a dad growing up consistently. So when God became my dad on that island, on those beaches, he came alongside me like a father. And just like when I tell my kids, don't don't touch that, don't touch that. And now my 11-year-old, if he goes to touch that, I'm like, you touch it and you find out. And he does, and he finds out. I don't let Bella do the same things because she's one. She's dumb. Don't. I don't know what you're doing. But eventually, you let your kids say, okay, you go shock yourself. You're welcome. Don't shine a laser in your eyeball, Jackson. Why? My eye hurts, Daddy. I told you not to do that. Why didn't you stop me? Because you need to learn from your own stupidity. Are you ready to listen to your dad now? Yes, Daddy. Right now, I'm loved by all my children. It's a rare moment for me. Um, usually, I'm rocking a solid 50%. But, um, but when God walks alongside you as a dad, remember that it's not your inability or abilities. He's not impressed by your, your works. He just wants you to bring nothing, not even a duffel bag with a Bible. He wants you to come empty-handed and say, Lord, I can't do this again. I can't be judged by these people again. And just believe me, Chapel family, I'm with you. I felt the judgment of Christians. That's why I'm so skeptical of you all and myself. All the Christians who are supposed to be there weren't. Maybe you've experienced that. Whatever the scarlet letter is on your life, whether it's a D for divorce, whether it's an S for some sexual sin, whether it's an A for some addiction, I need you to know you can run to the cross of Christ and find total and complete forgiveness, restoration, redemption, healing, and freedom. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And Lord, I know that this is a tough topic, and I know that there are a million questions about specifics relating to divorce and remarriage. Lord, this passage is so explicit, and it's so, so clear that I pray we would operate in it. And I pray that we would not just limit ourselves to this one text, Lord, but that we would read the list of passages in the Bible to know what it means to be a son or a daughter in your kingdom, the kingdom of God. Lord, I'm grateful that you met me on the beach when I had nothing. Some people here, Lord, need you today. Not to be just their Lord, just their king, just their creator. Some people in here need you like I need you every day to be dad. So be dad. Show grace and kindness. Show forgiveness. Teach us. Thank you. Thank you for the way you've carried all of us along. We'll talk to you later.